This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Have you ever noticed how celebrities have brighter, whiter looking eyes? Their makeup artists have a little secret in their kit. Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops. You guys, I use these every single day. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute. It literally happens right before your eyes to help them look brighter, whiter, and more awake for up to eight hours. No wonder it is so loved by influencers, celebrities, and makeup artists and has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. Lumify is also the number one eye doctor recommended redness reliever eye drop and it's FDA approved. No bleach, no dyes. Plus it's made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lomb. So whether you're on set, on a date, or running on just a few hours of sleep, you can have eyes that look brighter and whiter with Lumify eye drops. And when you try it, you'll see that it is what your eyes have been looking for. So check out lumifyeyes.com to learn more. Hey everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. We're in a series right now called for the love of community and friendships, which is just, we're really excited to do this particular lift because this is such a common conversation in the community. Particularly, we're going to really unpack two big ideas today. Number one, making friends here in the middle of life, which according to the community is a pretty surprising hardship. Just surprising because I don't know that we expected to still be having to figure out how to make friends in our 40s or 50s or whatever, or we've moved or life has changed in some way. And so we're going to talk about that and some really powerful approaches to making friends and being a good friend. And so I love the data because this is way less scary than we're telling ourselves in our head. And so more to come on that. And then we're also going to talk a lot about what happens when we have conflict in friendship, which, ugh, right? So either a friendship has some toxic behaviors inside of it, or there's harm being caused, or the other kind of a bit of it, a loss is when life changes and we feel a friendship drifting. We're going to talk about both of those and what to do. And our guest is so great about saying, here's some potential scripts to use. Here's the approach. And it's so like healthy and kind and generous. And one thing that she said today that I really liked is that 
conflict does not mean we get to check kindness at the door. Like, just because we are in a moment that is high emotion or hard conversation does not mean that kindness is no longer a part of the equation. She's like, no, we still have to be just as kind as we are when everything's going great. And I I just really appreciated that because I think sometimes conflict to us feels aggressive and sometimes even mean-spirited and certainly full of blame. So anyway, more on that to come. And she is so incredible to give us so many useful tools. So we're lucky because we have Dr. Marissa Franco here today to walk us through friendship stuff. Marissa and I met almost exactly a year ago. We were both on a panel at the Aspen Ideas Festival on adult friendships. So I was I had her on one side and another academic on the other side, both of whose this is their work, their like doctoral work, and then me. And I was like, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> anyway, she was so smart, so salient, and so warm and generous of spirit. I was like, woo, I I want to know more about her. Her work is really important. And so when we knew that we were going to do a me course on friendship, she was my first call. And so Marissa came to my house in Texas and we actually filmed a whole section of that particular me course. So here's why. Dr. Franco is a leading expert in the field of friendship and interpersonal relationships. And her extensive research has made her a sought-after speaker and consultant. She's a TED Talk speaker. She's got a PhD in counseling psychology and just a ton of experience. She's very uniquely positioned to talk about adult friendships, not just from an empirical state, but from research and data. And Marissa is a professor at the University of Maryland. She authored the New York Times bestseller, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. She writes about friendship for, I mean, all kinds of incredible publications, Psychology Today, the New York Times, Vice, etc. And so additionally today, she's going to walk us through how our attachment styles play a role in our friendships. It's just everything is so useful. And so whatever brings you to this episode, whether friendship is just a real thriving place and you want to figure out how to keep it so, or whether you're in a season of loneliness or maybe a season of conflict, it's all in here for you. This episode is packed and I think you're going to love it. And I want to say I'm sorry in advance for the lawnmower that started up outside right in the middle of the episode. Well, nothing I could do. So enjoy the sound of grass being cut and definitely enjoy this incredible conversation with the absolutely wonderful Dr. Marissa Franco. Marissa, I'm so happy to see you again. I have just admired your work and respected you so much since we first met last summer in Aspen. Yes, it's great to see you again. It's wild that it's already been a year since Aspen. I am super happy to be here. Your research is so interesting. So, okay, let's just start here. For my listeners who haven't met you yet or they're new here, this is their first time to experience you. Let's just kind of start from a high level place. So obviously you studied the the sort of basics really of let's just say in the broadest terms cuz this is this has a million breakdowns but what works and doesn't work in the area of friendship and how those things relate to attachment styles which is really it's just a really specific 
area of study, which I think is something that a lot of us are kind of paying attention to, at least I am for the first time. So can we just start there? Can you high level some of your findings here and talk to us first about attachment styles and why they matter in the context of friendships? So attachment styles are like our unconscious set of assumptions for how people are treating us. And when it comes to friendship, so much is ambiguous. Like, why didn't that person text me back? Do they hate me or are they, are they busy? So a lot of the ways that we interpret our world of friendship is based off our own unconscious baggage, but we don't even realize that we're doing it. So, so securely attached people, for example, they have had positive, healthy relationships in the past. So they go into relationships assuming that other people are trustworthy, that they will be loved by other people. And what we see in the research is that securely attached people, more likely to initiate friendships, better at maintaining friendships, less likely to end them, Mm. more comfortable being vulnerable in friendships, showing affection, all of these things that make friendships thrive, securely attached people are really good at. Mm. But then you have anxiously attached people and they've learned from their past relationships that people will abandon them. Mm. And so in friendship, I call them high effort, low reward. They're trying Mm. really hard. Mm. But things aren't working out. And that's because we see in the research that, for example, when there's a sign of rejection that's ambiguous, anxiously attached person assumes it's rejection and then they escalate. They withdraw, Mm -hmm. they might attack back. Mm -hmm. Their amygdala, which is the part of their brain associated with stress, it lights up more brightly in response to rejection than people of other attachment styles. So so it's real. Like this is real. It's not imagined. Yeah. Yeah, this is a genuine brain response. Yeah, so they're more preoccupied with their friendships. You know, if something happens in their friendships, they think about it, they ruminate on it. They feel like very afraid that other people are going to abandon them again. So they don't share their needs. They just back away. They might bend to the other person's needs a lot more than they are expressing their own. They're they're vulnerable to unhealthy friendships because they actually are sometimes attracted to people that make them earn love rather than people that give it freely. Because again, they have the sense that this is what's normal. People are going to pull away from me. And if someone's just giving me love freely, I'm skeptical of it. I don't trust it. Mm. That's not what I've experienced before. So then you have avoidantly attached people who also have previous difficult experience in relationships where they've basically experienced neglect. Like Mm. people might've been there for them parents with food, shelter, Mm -hmm. but emotionally their parents were like, shut it down. Stop having your reaction. Stop crying. Stop complaining. Never getting validated in their emotional experience. So Mm -hmm. they've learned to suppress their need for connection. And so they're low effort, low reward. They're not trying. Avoided people initiate less. When we see in the research is that when people are affectionate and loving towards avoided people, they think, oh, this person just wants something out of me. They don't admit that they need love because that requires the vulnerability of 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 admitting that. And they are allergic to vulnerability. They Mm. always want to be seen as having it together, not Mm. needing anyone, being self-reliant. And so fundamentally in their friendships, they're not investing. They're not intentional about making people feel loved around them because they think people can't be trusted. And if Mm. you can't trust people, why invest in them? So they just tend to be more lone wolves or else have a bunch of friendships that are really shallow, like more like party friends where there's not a lot of vulnerability. They don't feel like people really know them mm-hmm. and their friends feel like, I don't really know this friend. It's so interesting. I've heard you talk about this before. And 
of course, I cannot help it. I'm always sitting here self-identifying. I feel like I used to be pretty securely attached. Just in general, I I grew up securely attached. And so it just never occurred to me not to be. And I uh, always assumed essentially positive intent everywhere to a fault, probably like to, to the detriment of red flags. But after my divorce, which was not mutual, I noticed that really for the first time in my life, I have some anxious attachment behaviors that are new to me. I, I I keep going, what is, why am I telling myself a story like this in my head? Like, why am I like catastrophizing or fixating or like what you said at the very beginning, assuming rejection, like any, any little glitch in the matrix. I'm like, well, that's unintentional. That's an intentional thing. That's the, it's a whole thing there. Do you see adults possibly changing their attachment style or are we, is it, is it baked into the sauce more or less? No, it changes. It definitely changes Uh over time without a major issue happening. We actually tend to get more secure over time in the research, but certainly like a major trauma can disrupt our attachment styles. And that's to say, I believe we are all, all of the attachment styles Hmm. and that different relationships can bring some to the surface and that yeah, and then we also have a global attachment yeah. style, which means that that's the one that kind of tends to surface. But I don't think it's just so co- categorical and compartmentalized. It's kind of yeah. like different situations can bring out different things. Different people can bring out different, different life experiences can bring out different things. And so I, I think, yeah, a lot of people could probably identify with that as well. I think the other good thing I just heard you say is that we do tend to get more secure the older we get, the longer we live, which is great news. Like we're not stuck in one of these sort of dysfunctional attachment spaces. We can learn here, right? We can get better. We can become more healthy in our relationships. That's, if this isn't fixed. Exactly. I think that's just a really important message because people are like, well, Marissa, why are you telling me about this attachment? It's just, I'm doomed and (laughs) I'm doomed to dysfunctional relationships. And I, for me, the power of attachment styles, why I really love the theory is like, if you don't understand your attachment style, you think that the world is just mean and cruel and people are going to reject you or people are going to betray you if you're more avoidant and you don't have any power, you don't have any agency because all the issues are out in the world. But when you understand attachment theory, you see oh, because I have this assumption about the world, it leads me to engage in certain behaviors that Mm. are making that assumption more likely to become true, right? So avoidant people, Mm. whenever someone expresses love, they think this is because they want something out of me. They don't actually receive it. Eventually people stop expressing love. It's not because people don't love you, Mm -hmm. but it's because your ideas are affecting your behavior or anxiously anxious people thinking everyone is going to reject them Mm -hmm. and kind of pulling away and disengaging when something happens in a relationship, like they don't hear back from a friend and then they escalate and they take longer to not respond. And then, you know, there ends up being a rejection that happens because of that escalation. So I think if we can understand our attachment styles, we just have more agency. We have more control. We can shift our behaviors and we can find the relationships that we really want. Hmm. This is great. This is an interesting conversation that people are having in the community, which is the sense of 
almost diversity in your friendship. You kind of hear opposites attract and we generally apply that to a relation or a romantic relationship. But I'm curious your thought on how that affects friendships. Like, and maybe it doesn't, but is there a role that similarity or compatibility play in like forming and certainly sustaining friendships? Is there a reason we're drawn to people who are super similar? Is there good reason to reach beyond those boundaries as well? Yeah. So friends that are similar and different give us different things. So when we are in our young 20s, we tend to make a lot of friends. And the reason is at that point, we're really looking to expand our sense of identity. And people do that for us. You expose me to new experiences. I never thought I would have played soccer, but here I am. I never thought I would have gone dragon boat sailing, but here I am. And so, you know, meeting different kinds of people, engaging different types of relationships, they kind of expand our sense of our identity, expose us to new things, which we really desire, especially around, you know, in our 20s and our teenage Mm -hmm. years. And so, but there could also be periods of time, right, where you're looking for novelty, you're looking for adventure, you're looking for difference in perspective, you're looking for that challenge. And so you tend to want to have friends that are different from you. I also think it's important to have friends that are different from you for like equity issues. Like I think one of the ways that people come to understand the tribulations of other people that have marginalized identity is through personal relationships, like more Mm -hmm. so than, you know, hearing debates online. It's like hearing your friend go through really difficult experience because they're black or because they're gay. Like that's what really pulls people in. And so I think just like from a, the perspective of like how we heal as a society, mm. <laughs> I think connection across difference is important. That being said, what we see in the research is that people are a lot more likely to be friends with people that are similar to them. It's called homophily. And so, and, and the value of these similar relationships is they do make us feel very safe. So when you're going through a really difficult time, for example, it's nice to just have those friends that understand, that get mm. you. We have different needs when you shift out of that difficult time and you're feeling more stable, then you might be more open to the friends that are different from you are going to challenge you and push you. So it also depends on like what's going on in your life right now. What kind of support do you need? Are you looking for novelty because you feel stagnant? Mm -hmm. Are you looking for safety and security because you've gone through some difficult times? Kind of springboarding sideways off of that. I'm interested in your take friendships happening organically. If I hear one consistent pain point inside my community, it is the surprising reality of friendships being difficult here in the middle of life. I don't know. It just feels like friendship gets a lot of play in the younger years and particularly teen, adolescent, even young adulthood. But it's surprising to a lot of women here, like in our forties going, well, damn, I thought that by the time you're this age, your friendships are locked and loaded, like you're kind of over that hump. And yet the, the, a very common experience is loneliness for a million reasons later than we expected. And so this idea of making friends now when like life is just bananas and the kids, it's, you know, it's the whole thing. And so should we be expecting that to just happen? Or what does that look like to apply intentionality to new friendships when you're like 40 damn five? Yeah. I just threw I a see. lot at you. Pick, yeah, I'll try to go. break it down a little. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I, I hear that there can be this assumption that everyone has their friends and, you know, I should have had my friends already. And 
to be honest, it's a lot more typical for people to be lonely than it is for them to be complete okay. in their group of friends. I mean, mm. the rates of loneliness are anywhere from 20 to 50% based on the study. Wow. So that's very high. Likely whoever you ask to hang out with will be really happy that you did more so than they'll be like, oh, I'm sorry. I already have my group of friends, so I'm not open right now. Hmm. And I see this idea that friendship happening organically as just a saboteur of, of friendship that, you know, we see in the research that people that see friendship as happening without effort are more hmm. likely to be lonely five years later. People that see it as requiring effort are less likely to be lonely five years later. So you're going to have to try. It's not just going to happen for you. I think as, you know, people, for people in their forties, one benefit that you might have more than younger people is that you have more life. And so there are people that you can look back to in your past who you're like, I wish I never fell out of touch with them. I wish that we continue to be friends and stay close. And what we see in the research is that when people try to reconnect with someone, that person is happier to receive that reconnection than we predict. Hmm. So I hear people say things like, oh, they moved on with their life. They don't hmm. care about me anymore. Right. But we see in the research that actually people are a lot happier to, to be reconnected with than we might predict. So I would say start there, like, hmm. you know, scroll through your, you could scroll through your social media, your phone. Who were you talking to these last couple of years that you wish you, you were still talking to and just be like, hey, you know, I was just thinking about you. How's it going? And if they're responsive, like, oh, we'd love to reconnect. Like, would you be open to meeting up sometime? I always talk about the importance of joining something repeated over time. Like if you have no friends right now and you want to make friends, I would say what's in, something that you enjoy. It could be a walking group. It could be mm. a class. It could be a language yeah. class. And how can you join a community around that thing? Because when it, an interaction is repeated, we benefit from something called the mere exposure effect, which is our unconscious tendency to like who, who is familiar to us. So yeah. You know, there is this study where people were planted into a psychology lecture. At the end of the semester, nobody remembered any of those women that were planted into the lecture, but they liked the woman that showed up for the most lectures 20% more than the woman that didn't show up for any. Interesting. So if we can just, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. So if you could just find something that's repeated over time, people are going to like you more. You're going to like them. And then yeah. at some point just say like, oh, I really enjoyed getting to know you. Would you be open to getting tea yeah. before our next class or after yeah. our next class? That's the other thing that I see that people struggle with. Sometimes they're like, I want to make friends. They join a community. They just wait for people to come to them. They're engaging in something called covert avoidance, which is our tendency to show up physically, but check out mentally. We don't mm. engage with people. We're on our phone. We talk to the one person we already know. We're in the corner. We just seem disinterested. Yeah. You have to overcome covert avoidance by saying, oh, hey, like I really enjoyed our last class. What did you think about it? Like you actually have to introduce yourself to people. You can't just show up. Hmm. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24 hour steroid free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose and sneezing. So get fast acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. 
A-S-T-E-P-R-O-Allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. It's so funny how this idea that connection is just going to happen to us magically is embedded without any effort on our part. So it really is true that for kind of a a minimal amount of effort, you can create connection. Like that's not that big of a deal. What you just said, that's, that's not hard. It's not time consuming. Like that's not over the top. And I remember hearing you talk about this before it's helpful to remember, like you just said, most people are craving connection. It's just, that's a great baseline to start from. Like, I think this idea of going, nobody is craving connection is just a silly place to start because it's simply not true. Like it's helpful. It's, it's bolstering to imagine like at least 50% of the people in here would love a coffee date. (laughs) It's pretty good odds. (laughs) Okay. I really want to drill into the heart of today's conversation because we're talking about conflict in friendship, which is a universally detested situation. I, I can't find anybody who enjoys this, who feels great about this, who is even that good at it. You know, we, we expect to have conflict in our marriages We expect to have them with our kids, our parents and siblings. Like those really, really, those come with a lot of instruction on what to do when you get sideways. There's less instruction on what to do when you get sideways with a friend. There's a major deterrent for most people to address an issue with a friend, which is interesting because we're not afraid to address it with a kid or a spouse. But with a friend, something is wrong. So let's start at the beginning stage, if we can, and kind of work our way through a little bit. But let's say someone's listening and they've got a real conflict with a friend, and maybe that friend has no idea. Can you talk about the initial healthiest steps, the best way to begin to engage dialogue to either preserve or redeem? Or sort out this friendship to see if it's worth keeping. Yeah. The first step is really with yourself. You know, being able to reflect on how you're feeling, understand what the issue is, self-soothe, like soothe your emotions so that you can go into this conversation trying to understand the other person and share your side. So Mm. you want to go in with the sense of mutuality, which means I'm invested in getting both of our needs met, not just mine. I'm not going in trying to win because if I'm winning, my friend is losing, right? And that's that's going to be harmful to the relationship. So am I in a place where I'm not going to be reactive in this conversation? Am I in a place where I'm going to share my needs, but also try to understand their needs? Am I in a place where I'm looking at this as a way to repair our relationship Mm. and reconcile our relationship rather than just attack? So that might require you writing stuff down. It might require Mm. you venting to someone else. It might require you talking to your therapist about it so that you're in the right place for repair. I don't recommend having reactive conflict when you're very angry because we're not able to perspective take, which is key to healthy conflict. Mm. When you're approaching this friend, starting with framing, which is the first thing that you say should be something that indicates that this 
you're addressing this conflict as an act of love, right? Mm. Hey friend, you're so important to me. I really value our friendship. I don't want anything to get between us. And there's, there's been something on my mind. So I knew that I had to bring it up so that that doesn't happen. So starting with that framing, you know, can we chat about it at some point? And then I like to text the frame and then invite in person. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah. Do you like that? Because it gives that other person a minute to receive that and process that before they have to like be locked into a pretty intense conversation. Yeah. I like that because I don't want to bring up conflict if someone's unprepared because then they might be more likely to be Defensive. reactive. Yeah. Yeah. So they get their self-soothing time too. Right. Sure. And so when we meet up, making sure that you're saying like, this is my reality. This is how I feel when you're late. I feel less loved. <laughs> I feel hurt, you know? And so you're not attacking the other person. You're not saying you're a bad friend. You're lazy. You're not thoughtful. You're not responsive. Mm-hmm. You get so angry all the time, right? There's this way that us healing ourselves, getting our needs met in the friendship is going to help our friend too. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we want to be able to acknowledge that. So I have a friend, she's a talker. <laughs> she's a talker. I'm thinking, how do I address this? Cause I'm getting so tired and so drained. Yeah. And we're on a vacation together. So I'm like, I really do need to address this. So I'm able to realize that by me being disengaged, that's also impacting her because she's not being listened to as well. So I address it by saying, you know, hey, like I realize I'm not always the best listener in our friendship. Mm. I want to be a better listener. Here's what I might need for that. Like I might need one story at a time. I might need some volley back and forth. (laughs) So so making Yeah. Yeah. Just saying like, Hey, like I want to be able to be close to you or I want to be able to be really vulnerable with you so that Mm. we can be closer. And what I need from that is like, when I share, like instead of advice, I'd rather validation or something like that. So that's the framing piece. That's really important Mm. that I feel statements. And then the perspective taking, which is like, Hey, what were you meaning when you said that? Or what was going on with you? What's, what's going on in your life that might be contributing? Is there something that I'm missing here? And Mm -hmm. so hearing what their experience is and coming together and being like, okay, we're a team here. Here's Mm -hmm. your needs. Here's my needs, right? Maybe you're neurodiverse. You have ADHD. Like time is really hard for you, but time's also important for me. So as a team, how do we get both of our needs met, right? Maybe what if I tell you to show up a half hour earlier than what's intended? Like what, yeah, what's something that's going to work for both of us rather than something that's going to work for me at your expense or work for you at my expense? Mm. That's so disarming to come in like that. Generally, most people have really polished up their list of offenses. Like, let me bullet point all the ways that, so coming at it from that approach is inviting and less like threatening. Would you say there are some general behaviors or responses that sometimes mean a friendship is not necessarily redeemable? Mm. Like, are there, are there places where a friendship is just not a safe place? Yeah, that is a good question. I'll talk about some responses that could be really harmful when you're working through conflict. Cause remember yeah. you have to be kind to friends all the time, not just mm in conflict too, right? Like if you're unkind Mm. to friends, it's going to hurt the friendship. And, you know, I don't, sometimes somehow people think like when I have conflict, I can be unkind because conflict is inherently unkind. No, you have to hold yourself to those same standards of of conflict and kindness. So 
one thing that I see that really harms friendships during conflict is blame, right? Yeah. So someone says, I wish you didn't miss my birthday. And you said, well, you did this, 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 and this. Here's yeah. all the things that you've done that made me act like that. Yeah. You push it, you put it back on them. For me in healthy conflict, I think of what does this conflict look like without blame? Like, what mm-hmm. if I go into here, not trying to blame this person, not trying to even assume that they had, they were trying to intentionally hurt me. And so then how do I navigate it with that being what's going on in my head? And then there's different behaviors. These are the Gottman's couples therapists. So they've mm-hmm. researched conflict a lot more intensively than we see in, in friends. And they find that there's certain behaviors that really predict divorce. And I think we can say it's also don't use this in friendship, mm-hmm. which are stonewalling, which means you just shut down, Yeah. which are defensiveness, which means you, they tell you there's an issue and you respond, you know, well, actually it's not a big issue. You're being too sensitive or this is the issue that I have with you, which is contempt where you literally just like put them down or you roll your eyes at them. And which is like criticism, which is you tell them something. It's kind of like a lighter version of contempt where you tell them something about themselves. Like, you know, you're not a great friend. You're not as thoughtful. Mm -hmm. You're not loving towards me. Or even when you say you always do this, because that indicates something about their character, right? So trying to avoid saying you always do this, for example. So those mm-hmm. are the kind of things we want to avoid. We want to avoid blame. We want to avoid criticism. We want to avoid contempt. We want to avoid defensiveness. We want to avoid stonewalling. Mm-hmm. But here's the complicated part of conflict and friendship. Sometimes when we get into a conflict and a friend is reactive, we think to ourselves, that's who they are. You know, this is mm-hmm. the real them. I finally got to know the real them. Like they've just, you know, the person I knew before was not the real them. This conflict mm-hmm. person is the real them. But conflict actually tends to bring out our most triggered selves. And I don't think it's our realest self, right? Mm -hmm. And so even if a conflict goes bad and it was difficult, being able to reflect on, you know, is this conflict, this issue we've had with conflict, is it a sign of a larger pattern of unhealthiness in this friendship where this friend is not considering me and is, you know, more self-absorbed? Or Mm -hmm. is this something where I'm seeing a a very triggered part of them that's coming out in their friendship and they're otherwise kind and otherwise loving? So Mm -hmm. I think we also want to keep the bigger picture in mind, which can be really difficult when conflict goes wrong. That's so good. And all I really have to do is reverse that and apply it to myself to know what you're saying is true. There's a brand of conflict that is confusing for a lot of adults, because we get a sense that we're doing something wrong or we're not doing it right. And that is when a friendship begins to shift or loosen its bonds via change. So whatever that is, a stage of life change, obviously distance and a move eventually wreaks some havoc generally on the strength of a connection, a change in relationship status, Whatever it is, our life has some sort of shift and we feel it in a friendship and even start to distance from that. Can you talk about just that phenomenon, first of all, and if we are supposed to expect our friends to hang on with us through all all the various life changes? And then on the flip side, what do we do when our friend is the one who had a change and we feel them and we're like, where are you going? What do we do? What do we do with that kind of conflict, which is so largely internal? Yeah. It's so hard. Yeah. You know, I was on this podcast. This guy was like, 
think he was like in his late sixties and he, he never had kids. So he was talking about how he went through this period where his friends had kids and he saw them less. And he was like, well, if you wait it out though, they come back and now they are retired or the kids had moved on to college and stuff. He was close to those friends again. And so Yeah, sometimes we have this assumption of linearity when it comes to friendship, like we're just going to get closer and closer and closer Mm. and closer. And it threatens us when that assumption of linearity is violated. But in fact, the ebb and flow is what's normal, right? Like life Mm. is ebb and flow. It's nature to ebb and flow. You know, it's nature to have seasons in friendship. And we see that the people that the friends that persist are the ones where we assume that there's ebb and flow that's part of the friendship. Because the people that assume linearity, when there's an issue, when you're talking less than you used to, for example, you take it as a sign of rejection. And when we think we're rejected, we tend to reject back and you just kind Mm. of escalate it, right? Instead of assuming, oh, I know this is a busy time in their life and that, you know, I trust that at some point we'll like reconnect again, or Mm. at some point it'll get a little bit easier for us. I believe in mutuality, which means, again, I'm thinking about my friend's needs and my needs at the same time. And when I look at both of our needs, who's, who's are the biggest priority, right? So with my friends who have tiny children, I'm like, I could give them more grace and be more flexible Mm. because I have the capacity to be flexible. Now, if there's other things going on in my life, like let's say I'm caretaking for an elderly parent, I might really need them to show up at that Mm. point, you know, with mutuality in place, I still might try to get, ask them, ask them to show up for me more. So it really is about us thinking about both of us and what can be provided if we think about both of us as a unit. The other thing is though, that like in order to give friends grace as they are going through different life stages, as they might not be able to show up for us in the ways that we has happened in the past, we need to make sure we're getting our needs met elsewhere, right? Because mm. if it's the, this is the only friend who's my confidant, the only friend mm. I could be vulnerable with, yeah. suddenly they can't call me every day, right? Yeah, I'm not going to be able to give them that grace because my need is now going unmet. Mm-hmm. And so the capacity to give yeah. grace is based on our ability to make sure we have multiple places where we're getting our needs met. So I can say, hey, you know, we can't talk every day like we used to. You're not the person that I can necessarily just call at the drop of the hat when I need to talk to someone. But I do have other people that provide that need. So I'm understanding in this period of time that you can't give that to me. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think empathy comes from the privilege of having some other needs met. So we can also just like take care of ourselves outside of the friendship and make sure we're having a larger community so we can give our friends grace when life stages disrupt our ability to have the closest that we used to. You guys, how important is sleep temperature? It's everything to me. And this is where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Its mission is to elevate the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. It's designed for one or two sleepers. So if your partner likes to sleep at a different temperature or you only need it for one side of the bed, it still works. I just put this on top of my existing mattress and voila. So whether you're dealing with night sweats or simply seeking a better night's rest, Chili Pad is here to transform your existing mattress into a sanctuary of cool, relief, and comfort. Visit www.sleep.me slash FTL to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code FTL. This offer is exclusively available for the love listeners. 
only for a limited time. So order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with your sleep trial. So visit www.sleep, that's S-L-E-E-P, dot M-E slash F-T-L, because every woman deserves to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer the day ahead. Did you know more than 75% of Americans experience foot pain in their lifetime, but only 10% seek out a solution for that pain? Your feet don't have to hurt. So let me tell you about Superfeet. Superfeet has a wide range of insoles for every activity, every shoe, and every foot, from cushioned and flexible to firm and supportive. You can dial in your fit by taking their quick quiz online. Answer just a few short questions and Superfeet will recommend the best insole choice for you. Foot biomechanics may be complex, but solving foot pain should be simple. So when you add the signature orthotic shape of Superfeet insoles to your shoes, you give your feet comfort and support where they need it most, helping redistribute forces to reduce stress and strain on your entire body, not just your feet. When your feet feel good, so do you. Your foot health is an important part of your overall well-being. Visit superfeet.com and enter the promo code FTL at checkout for 15% off your first order plus free shipping. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Let's say someone has a conflict with a friend and they've they've kind of done this work that you've outlined and they've approached it in a way that is, it's got dignity baked into it and it's mutual and it's the hope was reconciliation and, and it's simply not working. And so can you give us something of either an internal or a verbal script for when the efforts have been kind of exhausted and a friendship has no longer a really healthy part of, of your life. What do you do? Mm. Mm. That script is really nerve wracking for most of us. It is. It is really hard. And I think some people prefer to ghost or back away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think if the friend is not invested in you anymore and it's kind of mutual, then that's okay. Mm. But I think when the friend is clearly still reaching out and trying to hang out with you and you're not invested, it's way kinder to tell them. Yeah. Because when we don't have closure, it triggers something called ambiguous loss, which means, you know, basically we don't understand why it ended. So we keep focusing on it. And it's like, Mm. you're escaping the pain of having to have that conversation. But in response, that friend is now having twice as much pain and rumination and trying to figure out. Right. So it's an act of kindness to be more direct, even if it feels very scary. Yeah. And so, you know, I think similar to some of the skills we have during conflict, which are like focusing on you mm-hmm. and, you know, the effect on you and doing something called a commemorative friendship, which means acknowledging that there still were beautiful moments in the friendship and just kind of saying, you know, going forward, like, I don't think we're compatible anymore, but I really appreciate this, this, and this. So I guess that would look something like, you know, mm-hmm. hey, friend, like, I know we've been working on this issue. It's been really hard, I think, for us to to work through this. And mm-hmm. I'm currently feeling like I'm I'm getting stressed within our friendship, or I'm feeling like this, you know, this incompatibility might be too much for me to be able to like work through here. 
or, you know, whatever the issue is, or, you know, I'm just really not feeling like as validated as I want to. And I know that, you know, you've been working on this, but we're just not getting there. I'm I'm just, you know, whatever the need is, that's not being met. And so, you know, I just wanted to share and, and be transparent with you that I don't think this is working for me. You know, that's not to say that I don't also acknowledge all the beautiful moments that we did have, you know, the ways that you showed up for me at this time, the ways that I've really grown and learned towards you. Um, so I wanted to make sure that I was telling you that, you know, this has been a really meaningful relationship for me, mm. even though it's not going to work for me any longer. Mm. Again, you still are preserving kindness. I like what you said earlier. We don't get to check kindness at the door just because conflict is in the room. Exactly. That's, that's not the, that's not how it works. Even in a bit of a friendship breakup, still kindness yeah. is required and helpful and the right thing to do. And the other thing that I think is really important is you hear me embrace ambivalence, which I think ambivalence, we typically think of as something negative, but mm-hmm. in times of conflict, we tend to see things as all negative and we don't see the ambivalence of there's positivity and there's negativity in this friendship. Mm-hmm. So if we're able to embrace ambivalence, we could say, Hey friend, you know, we don't hang out as much as I would like, but you also make me feel really loved when we do hang out. You know, mm-hmm. we can embrace that there's difficulty and there's also beauty at the same time, whatever. We just want to make sure that like, it's not me versus you, right? Mm-hmm. It's here. It's us. And, and mm-hmm. even internally, it's not me versus you. It's like a part of me that's struggling, but another part of me that really appreciates you. And I can give voice to both of those parts. I'm thinking again of the woman listening who's like, a little lonely in her life. And I'm going back to the earlier conversation. You talked about what the research says about essentially how people actually perceive you and think of you when they meet you. I've seen across the board in every aspect of human connection that when we predict how we're coming off, it's more negative than the truth. Yeah. We see this when we first meet people, when strangers interact, they underestimate how liked they are by the other person. That's called the liking gap. We see this when we're vulnerable with someone, we tend to think that people are judging us more than they actually are. And we underestimate how authentically they're perceiving us. That's called the beautiful mess effect. We see this on reconnecting with people. When we reconnect, we underestimate just how much people value it. We see this in affection. When we are, we predict how our affection comes off, we think it comes off more awkward than it does and underestimates Mm. just how much people value it. We see it with random acts of kindness that when people are asked to like give someone a hot chocolate, they underestimate just how much people will value that act of kindness. And Mm. so across the board, I think while we are built for connection, we are built for protection in a way that's stronger. And and social death feels like a form of death. Mm. And so when our brain is like, should I protect or should I connect with the other person? Often that desire to self-protect comes first. And these two things could be so much opposites, right? All the things I do to protect myself, I don't reach out. I withdraw, I back away. I don't share affection. I'm not thoughtful, right? All those things feel like they're protecting me. They're not making me more vulnerable, but they're harming my relationships. The things that we do to protect our relationships require us to be inherently more vulnerable. You know, I'm being vulnerable with you. I'm reaching out to you. I'm telling you how much I love and value you. I'm trying to work through this conflict with you. And if we avoid risk, then we're taking Mm. the biggest risk of all, which is that we're in this deep place of self-protection, but completely isolated. Yeah. Let's land the plane here on on some good news. What if you discovered in your research and in your life, because you have a deep, beautiful well of like friendships too, 
So you're also a person <laughs> in addition to being a doctor. What are some of the most lovely and best and most effective ways that you see that folks can attract the kind of friends that they're hoping for in their life? I mean, even in our 40s, 50s and beyond, what are the things that make us a good friend? Because again, that's where we can start is with ourselves and work on becoming a good friend and and having like attractive, really like literally attractive behaviors toward the kind of people we want in our life. What do you see those as being? So there's this thing I, oh gosh, I'm going to get into the research. You're like, take off your research hat. No, 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 do it. Do I'm it. Like, Here's the research. I look at the data. <laughs> okay. The analytics suggest. <laughs> the analytics. And then I'll try to provide some real world examples. This thing I like to call like diagnostic moments, which are these moments wherein people tend to look to what happens in those moments to diagnose the friendship overall. Mm-hmm. And those moments are when we are at our lowest and when we are at our highest. How do people respond in those moments? So mm-hmm. when I'm sick, when I got COVID, when I, you know, my cat, my, my cat died, when I go through this breakup, right? Yeah. How are my friends responding? That is the time. If you are able to be intentional about showing up for your friends, I'm talking about checking in emotionally. I'm talking yeah. about providing instrumental support, which means something physical and material. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to buy you food. I'm going to give you a self-care package. You know, I'm going to send you money for coffee. Intentional at at those moments, that is really going to be remembered as the face of the friendship. But Mm -hmm. also there was a study that found that how people show up for us when we're in our high moments predicts how satisfied we are in the relationship even more than in the low moments. Interesting. So when I got my promotion, when it's my birthday, when I you know, started my own business, when I had a kid that I wanted to have for a while, when I, you know, got into this new relationship, are you excited for me? Are you celebrating? Do I see my joy reflected in your eyes? Are you like, let me take you out. Cause I'm so proud of you. Let me get you a dinner. Let me send you some roses. Let me send you a bouquet. Like all of those moments are mm-hmm. so, so important. And that's to say, right. That we don't have time. We're so busy. It's so hard. But if you show up in those moments where it really, really matters, the highs and the lows, even if you can't show up all the time, that's going to mean so much for the friends in your life. Hmm. I love that. I'm doing a little mental catalog in my own life of my friends who have done that for me over and over and over, both high and low. And those are the moments I think I feel the most loved. And so we all can do that. Can you, before I let you go here, can you tell my community, because, I mean, we've barely even started. There is, this the tip of the iceberg. Under the water is another mountain here of stuff that you have researched and written about. Can you talk about where they can find your work and follow you and all of that good stuff? Absolutely. And thanks so much for having me, Jen. So, You can find me on Instagram at Dr. Marissa G. Franco. That's D-R-M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O. On my website, drmarissagfranco.com. You can take a quiz that assesses your strengths and weaknesses as a friend, give you some suggestions or reach out for speaking engagements on how to make friends or how to find belonging at work. And for more, you can read my book, Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Are you working on something new right now? I am. I am. I don't know how much I should disclose, but I saw this issue while I was studying friendship that 
basically, if you don't feel worthy, you tend to be more attracted to people that see you more negatively. Because when people see you positively, you're like, oh, I feel like an imposter. They're going to find out how, you know, crummy I really am. So it's very threatening to be in positive relationships if you feel really bad about yourself. So I want my next book to be about what's the work we can do on ourselves to have the capacity to engage in these healthy relationships. Mm, mm, mm. Are you already deep in the bag on that? I'm like really in the research. You know me, the research, (laughs) the research, the research is, yeah, I'm just like reading all the research, all the science of it right now. Well, I love that because in so many ways, this is very lightly explored. You know, this is a lot of new frontier and new territory. And I can't wait to see what you uncover and how you sort of alchemize that research into like life and what it looks like in a real life. You do that so well. That's not easy. So cheering you on big over here. Okay. Last question. You've answered this before, but everybody gets this and you can answer this however you want. Marissa, like this could be dumb as a sack of bricks. Or it could be like so meaningful and poignant. Like, I like it all. What is saving your life right now? I'm going to go for the, I don't want to say dumb because it's not <laughs> dumb to me. I I was just in Mexico for a month on my platonic getaway with all of my friends. And there's these items that I really miss because I feel like they make me feel like who I am. Like, like LaCroix seltzer. And honestly, a big one is like popcorn. I literally have a popcorn right here. Every time I have therapy after I have popcorn for myself, because it, you do. Yeah. I have therapy popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) It really helps me feel so soothed. I don't know what it is about popcorn. It's just Uh like the perfect snack for me. It's always there for me. Like, I feel like, I don't know. It's like a, it's, if I had a secure attachment snack, it would be popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, you were talking to the wrong girl. If you want me to say the, a snack answer is dumb, like, <laughs> I'm like, here, here, outside. Snacks are life, man. Popcorn, you have it right next to you. It's so perfect. I love it. Thank you yet again for coming on and for being here and for just your generosity toward my community and toward me. It just means so much to me. And so great to see you. Until next time, when you're ready to talk about what our self worth means to our friendships. Here, give me a call. Sounds good. Let's run it on the show. You too. Thank you. Okay, guys, as promised, so much more. We just barely started this conversation. So if you go to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, not only will I have this entire episode and all the show notes, but I will have all those links to Marissa's work and her spaces and her websites and her socials, her books, everything. There is so much to learn here. And I'm so grateful for all she has brought to bear on my community. She's so generous with her time and her incredible knowledge and experience. And every time she's like, well, there's a theory that I'm like, oh, I can't get enough of it. (laughs) I just love it. I love all her data-based information. So more to come in this series, you guys. We are hoping to like just fill your little toolkit with so many resources on keeping and maintaining the most thriving, healthy adult friendships. So thanks for being here and we'll see you next week.